If you would, for our sermon, turn to Psalm 139, Psalm 139. One thirty-nine, verse thirteen. I'll read to verse eighteen. One one thirty-nine, thirteen to eighteen. <clears throat> For you formed my inward parts; you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I fe- I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you, the word of the Lord. Well, you can pray for me. I think I'm about where Mr. Blacklock was last week. I uh, thought I would be invincible and not get sick, but I'm invincible, and I I uh, probably have something going on. So you might not want to shake my hand today. But uh, we are going back to where we left off a few weeks back before we started moving through some Christmas material, Christmas sermons. A few weeks back, we started talking about discipling our children. And as Christian parents, as Christian grandparents, as those in the ministry, as those involved in church family life, we've been called to a task to train our children. We are to train our children, and the first thing we have to do as we take up this challenge is we have to take up our Bibles. Our Bibles tell us where to start. Our Bibles begin with God. If you go and look at Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I had a friend of mine who I I was talking to him years ago, and I said, he wrote a systematic theology. And I said, you're starting with that verse. He says, yes, this is the best place to start. This is where we start with our theology. This is where we start with our children. We, we, we begin discipling our children with the Word of God in our hands, and we teach them who God is, and we teach them what God is like. And in Psalm 139, just a few weeks back, you'll remember that we saw that God is omniscient in the first um, 12 verses. God is omniscient. God knows every single thing about me. And the second thing we learned is that God is omnipresent. God is with me at all times. And as we turn to verses 13 through 18, we're going to see that God is our sovereign creator. So God knows everything about me. God is with me at all times. And God is my sovereign creator. It sort of goes without saying, doesn't it? I mean, if God knows every single thing about me better than I know myself, and he knows every word I'm about to speak before I actually form it on my mouth my, my, with my lips, and, he know, and he's with me at all times, it kind of goes without saying that he's our sovereign creator. Well, I want to give you four points, and then I want to spend the remainder of the sermon giving you some applications. But our main point is this. God is my sovereign creator. 
And the first point under that is this. You, Lord, created my inward parts. That's power. That's omnipotent power. Now, Genesis 1 talks about macro creation. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go read Genesis 1 and 2, it talks about God creates the firmament. God creates the earth, the land. God creates the water. God creates all of these realms. And then into the realms, he places things. In the sun, I mean the sun and the moon and the stars are in the sky, in the firmament. In the waters we see fish, and in the air we see birds. And then God finishes up all of creation by creating a man in his own image. The pinnacle of everything God creates is, well, you're looking at it. You're sitting there. You're in God's image. Adam was created in God's image. That's macro creation. Not to mention all the galaxies that are still being found in big, gigantic telescopes today. But when we look at verses 13 through 18, David is focusing on micro-creation. David's focusing on something that happens in a secret place. If you see what he says there in verse 13, he says, You formed my inward parts in my mother's womb. Well, that's a secret place. In fact, I think if you wanted to, you could look back at verse 13, go back to verse 12, where he talks about the dark places and people thinking, well, are there some dark places where God can't be, where God can't exist? And he tells us, no, even the dark is not dark to the Lord. And so he says, here we are looking at in the mother's womb, it's a dark place. Verse 15 says the womb is a secret place. Verse 15 says the womb is the depths of the earth. These are just metaphors for saying that this is hidden. Little things are hidden there. You and I are formed in a dark place. One commentator says from a speck. A speck. Your eyes, verse verse 16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. When a man's seed and a woman's egg collide together, when chromosomes come together, that is the beginning of human life. That speck is humanity. An individual is forming. Verse 13 says, you formed my inward parts. Now, that word in the Hebrew literally means your kidneys right here. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Have you ever, what is that? My consciousness. My soul, this is who I am as a person. You formed me in a dark place from a speck to my soul. Verse 15, to my frame. My frame was not hidden from you. Frame speaks of bony structure. This skeleton, you know, if you go and take a, if you go take a medical school or if you go to biology, one of the things you have to learn is the structure of the bones, the skeleton. That's one of the first things you do. And then you start putting stuff underneath them and on them and all that. This is the bony structure. In verse 13 and verse 15, he says, You wove me in my mother's womb when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Woven and skillfully wrought. This teaches us that God is a divine weaver. I see these women and they, they, they do their knitting and crochet. And I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But, but they take, they take their, their, their yarn And they make beautiful things. And God weaves us together. It was His plan. Every cell, every embryonic member, every part of you, 
God is the author and the detailer of it all. You formed me, he says, in a dark place from a speck to my soul to my frame. Not only do we see that God is our sovereign creator, but he's also our creator owner. When you see that word formed or created, it speaks of ownership. If you go in your backyard and you take out your tools and you make something, you know, you make something, don't you own it? (laughs) I mean, if you paint a picture, isn't it yours? Of course, you don't need to plagiarize and steal it from somebody. But when we make something, it's ours. And when God forms us in our mother's womb, he owns it. He owns us. The word formed is used in Exodus fifteen sixteen. Miriam sings of how the Lord purchased or formed a nation, bringing that nation out of Egypt into the promised land. That word means bought. How did God buy Israel out of Egypt? Well, he bought her out of Egypt through miracles, a mediator, and the precious blood of lambs. And David understood two things as he writes this. He understands that he belongs to God. God owns him by creation. He also looks back to the time when Israel was taken out of Egypt, and he looks at that as his salvation experience. That is, He's part of that people. He's redeemed through the blood of those lambs. He sees himself bought two times. He owned twice. God owns him by creation. God owns him by redemption. God created each one of you. It is, and, and if this is true, the question we're going to ask, and we're going to look at it again later, why then do men flee from God? And men flee from God because of the fall. Can you imagine a time? We are so immersed in our lives, it's hard for us to do anything but imagine what it would have been like before the fall. Can you, can you imagine walking to God and not always away from God? Can you imagine? Can you imagine a world where people would walk to God? When man fell, the problems started. But man's fall does not change the fact that we belong to God. Every single person in the world is owned by God. Every single person in the world should pay the rent, as Thomas Watson says. And God, though, even though men walked away from him, he's not finished because he has determined... Just as he saved Israel out of Egypt with his mighty arm and created a new nation, he has determined to save us from our sins at a new exodus. The blood of Jesus smeared on your life. You put your faith in him and you are saved from the slave market of sin. And you're owned twice. Now, there was a story I remember a a little boy who, I don't know, maybe you read this story. But there's a little boy who made a sailboat. And he was so proud of his sailboat. And he took it out on the water and he sailed it. And I, quite, I don't quite understand it. I don't know if it was, you know. But he, he sailed this sailboat. And one day it got away from him. And he tried to find it. And he looked all over the edges of the lake and he couldn't find it. And so he went home and he was a little dejected. And so many, many months later he walked by an antique shop. And there was his sailboat in the window for so much money. And he walked in and he told the owner, he said, hey, sir. He said, I made that. He said, well, oh, that's all fine and good. He said, but there's a price tag on it now because somebody brought it in here and sold it to me. And if you want, it, it's going to cost you this much money. So the little boy wasn't deterred. 
He went home. He earned money. He came back. He gave the man the money. And then he walked out and he says, I own you twice. I made you and now I've bought you back. I've redeemed you. And that's what Jesus does. That's what God does through his son, Jesus Christ, and his precious blood. He brings us back to himself through his son. Third, you and I, we need to understand that this God who's our sovereign creator, that's power, our sovereign owner, that's possession. He wrote the book on us. That's what he says there in verse, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not even one. So David is saying, God knows me. David is saying, God is with me at all times. God is saying that God is my creator. And he is saying that God has written the book on him. He's written the book on you. From eternity, God has ordained and purposed every single thought, every single word that you're going to say, every single action that you're about to do. He has ordained it. He has foreordained it. Our shorter catechism puts it like this. God has foreordained whatsoever, if everybody has it memorized, whatsoever comes to pass. It's already written down. God's not reading a book on you. (laughs) He wrote the book on you. Well, finally, your thoughts, he says, toward me are vast. Look at what he says there in verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. That kind of takes us back to the first few verses where he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He knows everything. He knows about hairs on heads. He knows every time a bird jumps up and down. He knows everything about you and me. And David is saying, this is so incredible. I can't even fathom it. I can't understand how your thoughts are towards me, how much you love me and care about me. And he ends in verse 18 saying this, When I awake, I'm still with you. Now, I don't know if David knows this or not, but every time you read about going to sleep and waking up, this is in the sermon tonight. When you go to sleep, that's a portrait of death. And when you wake up in the morning, that's a picture of resurrection. We're getting ready for death, and we're getting ready for a resurrection. And so David is saying, I think David is saying something about the resurrection here. So think about it from the beginning. God has formed you in a dark place, from a speck to my soul, to my bony frame. God God owns me by creation. God redeems me and owns me again through Jesus Christ and His precious blood. God has written the book on you. Every single thing you do, every single day of your life on the earth, and ultimately all through eternity, God has written the book on your eternity. From womb to tomb to resurrection, God has written the book on you. And that's what I think the psalmist is saying. And in Christ, nothing, in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, these are the points that I wanted to bring in front of you underneath that one head. God is your sovereign creator. Now, the rest of the sermon is going to be application.
God is your sovereign creator. And as such, God has the right to define everything he creates. Maybe I should read that again. God is your sovereign creator. And as such, he has the right to define everything he creates. Therefore, you and I must teach our children that God is the ultimate and final authority over every definition, over every category. God is the one who defines it. The God who made you is the God who defines the terms for life. Now, there's many other texts. We could talk about the Christmas text and when life begins. But our text tells us that human life begins in the womb. That speck is a human being. It's not tissue, it's a human being being formed in a secret place. It's a person. And when chromosomes combine, that's a person, that's life. And the sixth commandment tells us that we're to preserve life from the very beginning to the very end. In the womb, and even when we have an old person who we might say, I've had people argue with me in the gym, that person is of no profit, time for a good death. The Bible does not teach that. From the womb to the very end, life is precious. You and I, we cannot take the life in the womb. We cannot take the life of a person when they're old. We cannot take our own lives. We can take care of ourselves in self-defense and our Country is given, our nation is given the right for capital punishment. But man with his reason comes along with this definition of life. And he says, what is in the womb is not a human person. Man comes along and says, it's a piece of tissue. It's a fetus. It's an accident. The sovereign self versus the sovereign creator, they're up against each other. Man's reason is up against God's revelation. Man will do literally anything to justify sin. Years ago, we would say that a woman was with child. Years ago, we would say that a couple was going to have a baby. We surely wouldn't say that someone's wife was with a fetus. We wouldn't say that a person's wife was carrying around unwanted tissue. Man's reason changes the definitions. Man's reason does this in order to blunt the conscience, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness so they can do the things they do without guilt. And we've all heard this inconsistency. I do not want it. It's just a piece of tissue. It doesn't fit with my schedule. It doesn't fit with my life right now. It doesn't fit with my job right now. It, 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 it doesn't fit with me right now. But then the same person will say, well, you know what? This, my schedule's working out so that I, I, this is a baby now. What's up with that? It is what I want it to be when I want it to be on my times table. And God is telling us whether it fits in your schedule or not, it is a child. Man is continually trying to determine, listen to this, when the developing child is fully human. I got that from somebody. I can't remember. The developing child, when it is fully human. What kind of statement is that? (laughs) When it's fully, it's always human. It's complete contradiction. In the womb, it's a child. Two weeks, it's a child. Nine weeks, it's a child. Thirty weeks, it's a child. Life begins there. As small as it might be, it's steadily and uniquely becoming an individual human life 
And you and I, we must teach our children that life is a gift from God and that God is their creator. He's their maker. He's the divine weaver taking all those yarns and all those threads and making a beautiful little person inside mama's womb. Not only does God define life, but God has the right to define everything. Now, we could spend weeks on this, but I'm going to go fast, okay? God defines everything. God defines sex. God defines marriage. God defines family. God defines life for us. And when life comes into the world, when a little baby is born, that baby has a male or a female anatomy. (laughs) Don't we know that? Hasn't the last thousands of years taught us that? And when this little life comes into existence, it's a male or a female. God creates us, male or female. One of the things I love to do at a wedding is talk about, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and God created man in his own image. And so we have, you know, even even in the almond orchard, it still looks sort of like a church. When I'm doing this sermon in September, we had all the chairs out, and here's the man right here, and the preacher's right here, and he's waiting down there. And I want you to look at Adam, Adam in in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam, God says, I want you to go out, I want you to name all the animals. So there he is right there. He's right there. And all the animals come parading by, and he's saying, well, there's Mr. Elephant, and there's Mrs. Elephant. And there's Mr. Opossum and Mrs. Opossum. And there is Mr. Zebra and there's Mrs. Zebra. And all of these guys are parading by. And I want you to just see him there. The glory of God is flowing through his hair. He's, everything he says is good and right. He is God's epitome of perfection. There he is right there. And then he realizes, there's nobody for me. <laughs> I think that was the point. The point was to teach him it's not good for him to be alone. And so God puts him to sleep, takes out a rib, fashions a woman out of his rib. And then God does what? He walks down the aisle with, with Eve and hands her over to Adam. And now he has a corresponding member. He has a help meet to meet his compa- the, the companionship that he needs. It eliminates loneliness. And so immediately after we see the man created, we see the woman created, and now we have the institution of marriage, (laughs) right? A man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And we read in Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And after that we understand, I'm, I'm using our catechism right now, God created man in In knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, God created man and woman to join together, to rule and reign over all that is, and to go out and be fruitful and multiply. That's what he did. Now, I say all of that to point out that God has the right to define life. He has the right to define marriage. And then when these two people come together, they bring little persons into the world. And when those little persons are born, they are stamped with an anatomy. They're either male or they're female. And we call, when a husband and a wife come together and they have a family, we call now, we call them a mom and a dad and those little persons children. That's a family. This is God's definition of a family. So we have, we have life, 
We have male, we have female, we have the institution of marriage, and we have the definition of a family. So why are there so many problems in this world if this is, these are the definitions? Why are there so many problems with God's created order? Well, we talked about it a few minutes ago. In Genesis 3, the explanation is this. Adam and Eve sinned. And sin begins to permeate everything. Just think about what happens. Here are these people who walk with God in the early morning hours and at the, and at the end of the day. They no longer do that. They walk away from God. Now they're hiding in the trees. And not only are they hiding from God and not moving towards God, these two people are hiding from each other. Now we have problems between men and women, men and men, women and women. Just think about what Adam, you know, why did you do this? And Adam says, the woman. (laughs) That's not good. That's not good. The man is blaming the woman. So now we've got problems between each other. And then who knows how many problems we have on the inside. (laughs) You know, have you ever read in the Psalms? Just keep reading your Psalms and think about the times where the psalmist says, Lord, help me with all my internal heart issues. It doesn't, Brian's not, I mean, talking about, not talking about Mr. Blacklock. I'm not talking about Mr. Ross. I'm just talking about God. You you know, we were talking about it yesterday with the men. Luther was thinking to himself, if I just get into the monastery and get away from all the men and all the other people, I'll be okay. And he found out that he was part of the, the, the biggest problem. I'm the problem. All of this, the fall explains why we have human corruption. The fall explains why people do not seek after God. The fall explains why we worship creatures rather than the Creator. The fall explains why we love ourselves. The fall explains why we're rich in the things of this world and poor in the things of God. The fall explains why we excuse ourselves, why we justify all the things we justify. Are you justifying things? The fall explains... Why we lie, steal, cheat, slander, hit, and hurt. The law explains why we sin with our eyes, why we sin before we are married, why we sin when we are in marriage, and why men are wanting to marry men and women are wanting to marry men. If you want to call that a true category or not, that's what our role says. The the, the Bible, the Bible and these things explains, the fall explains why there's confusion When it comes to transgenderism, the fall explains brokenness, the brokenness of God's order. But in God's grace, he decided and determined to redeem sinners. And every single person in the world, every single person in the world needs to be saved through the blood of the Lamb. Republicans need to be saved. Democrats need to be saved. Independents need to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners who go and work out in the gym, who always eat perfect diets, and who would never dream of stepping on a fly. People who don't care about working out. People who eat whatever they want. They all need to be saved through the blood of the Lamb. We've got all these things, and sometimes it's like I used to talk to people in California, they, they, they had like Republicans are, are saved. Friend, listen, Republicans need to be saved. Democrats need to be saved. Everybody needs to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sinners who are immoral, sinners in their hearts, sinners, men and women, 
men and men and men, women and women, people who have problems with transgender, people who've committed abortion and participated in it, folks, all people need to be saved. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is coming back for a bride. He's the bridegroom. He's the one that's going to stand down here and he is also preparing a group of people to join him at the front. There's a marriage and there's a family. And you and I are to participate as those who, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are to participate in what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we're in heaven, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more marriage. There will be no more physical intimacy. Because all the physical intimacy that goes on in this world points us to the union we're to have with Christ then and there, and we will be forever with the Lord. There will be no more need for babies to be born because the image of God will be all over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. Until that time, we're here. Until that time, these definitions remain. So we stand on the word of God and hold them out. We still define men to be men who have an anatomy of a male. We still define women to be women who have the anatomy of a female. And as a male and as a female, these things tell us how God wants us to live our lives. You are given your anatomy. And these anatomies have drives and passions and feelings and urges. And they channel us in a certain direction. They channel us to marriage. Now, most people are going to get married. <laughs> most people, and now this is on side, all you young people listen, you need to marry somebody who's a Christian. That's what you've got. You've got to get married to somebody who's a Christian. You, when, when you take these steps, when you start thinking about who you're going to get married to, it's not a bad idea to talk to mom and dad. It's not a bad idea to be entangled with your session and with your, your minister and your elders. It's not a bad idea to have good counsel. But you marry a, a, a Christian. That's the norm. Now, I have a friend. There are exceptions to these norms. There are men and there are women. I have a, a male friend who lives in Berkeley, and he is so happy as a single man. He is completely undistracted with marriage and family obligations. Every man has his own obligations to his wife as a minister. He doesn't. He can drop, he can do anything, anytime he wants to. And sometimes I have to tell him that he needs to stop getting up and doing some of the things he does do because he's about to run himself ragged. But most of the time we get married. Why do we even need to say this stuff? Why do we need to bring this up today? Well, let me tell you why. Because nobody is. If you go watch TV, they're not telling you. They're not telling you the things you just heard from the pulpit every single day. We, we, you know, we, we get all hung up about, okay, we've got to talk about what justification is. We've got to talk about what adoption is. We've got to talk about what sanctification is. Folks, we just need to talk about that life begins in the womb. We need to talk about men are having male. And we have to explain these things in small bite-sized portions because our world is confused. Our country, with its laws and Supreme Court decisions, is doing a full court press to eradicate all of God's definitions. The secular mindset says this, men and female categories, life, family, marriage, 
we, these are just social constructs. Men came up with all these years long ago, and now we just need to undo them all. We'll flourish. If we redefine everything, we'll be so much more happy. Now, I don't know what you think about Dr. Phil, <laughs> but he does, he does have really a good statement he used to make 25, 30 years ago, and it's this. How's that working for you? It's not, this is not working very good, guys. All of this stands diametrically opposed to the definitions laid out by our sovereign creator who speaks clearly in his word. And if you and I hold fast to the truth, we'll have freedom, we'll flourish. You and I must teach our children that they have been made in the image of God. You and I must teach our children that they're either a male or a female and that that anatomy drives them in a certain direction of how they are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You and I must tell our children that God loves them and that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And they can only be saved through Jesus Christ. You and I, we need to help our children understand the confusion that's going on in the world is because of sin. And that you and I, we need to tell them, why do we struggle sometimes not to do the right thing? Well, because we still have sin remaining in us. We need to tell our children that apart from God's grace, you will be defining everything the same way the world does. We'll be, what does the, the, the writer of the Proverbs say? We'll live life upside down. We'll call right wrong and wrong right. Apart from the grace of God, there we will go. We must explain to our children that we're not any better than anybody else. That God's grace makes us humble, hold fast to His truth, and obey Him to the death. Ask my kids, one of my favorite statements is, to the death, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> to the death. It's the grace of God that teaches us to be humble and to boast in Jesus Christ alone and pray for these people, the folks in the world. Real human happiness may be had only when we humble ourselves before the sovereign creator. Life begins in the womb. Salvation comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. A family is made up of a man and a woman and little bitty people. And these things set us free. Jesus tells us that if we know the truth, if we know the right definitions, the right definitions will give us freedom. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to, Lord, in this world where we're just being drowned with so much wrong terminology, uh, so many wrong definitions. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that we can be sort of today drowned in your word from start to finish in this service. Father, I pray that you'll take these moms and these dads and as they saturate their hearts and minds with your word, that they will teach these, these things that seem to be so, to be, we ought to take for granted, we would think, to always be talking about the fact that we've been made in the image of God, that we are persons in the womb, we to be cared for all the way to the end,
is we've had many people in our congregation who've taken care of some of their loved ones all the way, showing us a wonderful example of how to take care of life to the bitter end. Lord, that we have families. Help us to teach our families about salvation through faith in Jesus, to be humble and boast only in Him, to humble our hearts and know that You give grace to those who humble themselves and will strengthen us to hold fast to the truth and to live according to your commandments. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.